I'm Lucy, and today I'm going to talk about prophecy, portents, and the end of the world in the Italian Renaissance. Hello, and welcome to Footnoting History. When I tell people how terrified 15th century Italy was about the end of the world, a frequent response is, but wasn't it the Renaissance? Well, arguably, yes, at least for educated male elites. But this was, from the perspective of many, part of the problem. It was a time of rapid cultural change, and as we all know, change is scary. Most narratives of late medieval European history, from my perspective as a specialist in the 13th through 15th centuries, are guilty of overemphasizing the rediscovery elements of how elite, learned cultures embraced humanism in this period. Still, Petrarch and others were very successful in self-branding as a bunch of enlightened genius types who had the insight to recover all the great and sophisticated learning that had been lost until they were wise and civilized enough to discover it again, thus experiencing a renaissance. Successful branding for over six centuries. So today, I'm going to talk about the anxieties of late medieval Italy, and in particular, how the realities and rhetoric of power shifted in Florence. The transformation of Florentine policy and Florentine rhetoric as it entered upon what is widely referred to as its golden age, its age of splendor and squalor, republican rhetoric and urban inequality, was created, arguably, by peasants advocating for their own rights. As relationships between cities and their hinterlands were reconceptualized, many moderately well-off peasants advocated for their rights as rebel subjects of the powerful republic. Multi-generational families, artisans and craftspeople, men and women, said that taxing should be more fair and that they should get more out of their relationship with the urban center. And remarkably, Florence listened. The economic and political scene, however, continued to be dominated by a cluster of families, an unofficial oligarchy of merchants and bankers and politicians, all connected to each other through elaborate networks of marriage and patronage. And at the end of the 15th century, the time I'm going to be talking about today, Florence was just reaching the end of about 60 years in which one of these family, the Medici, had successfully consolidated power in their own hands. From the days of Cosimo, uh, self-proclaimed as the wise doctor of his city, through his son and that son's more brilliant wife, Lucrezia Tornabuoni, and of course, Lorenzo, known as the Magnificent, um, but also more insultingly known as the master of the shop. Uh, the man who had exported Florence's prosperous small business model to the government of an entire city. This period has been described as a blotch and turning point in the history of the Italian peninsula itself. Venice might have been expected to rise to dominance, enjoying trading networks and banking of much longer duration, but it was Florence instead. Uh, Florence, with its successfully negotiating peasantry and its leading families who understood so well both the art of diplomacy and the craft of banking. So why turbulence here? Well, 
because alongside all this prosperity came a not significant amount of anxiety about whether or not this prosperity was pleasing to God. And into this environment came a Dominican friar named Girolamo Savonarola, who condemned the people of this world as unmindful of their sins, and who especially condemned the leaders of the church as men who bought and sold the blood of Christ. Historians still disagree about Savonarola, whether he was above all a political reformer, trying to nurture the more inclusive government of Florence's great council instituted after the end of the Medici, or an uncompromising moral reformer. Historians writing on Savonarola have sometimes seen him as a proto-Puritan, bringing sober but also depressing holiness to a corrupt and profligate city, or perhaps a proto-Protestant speaking out against evils within the church when no one else would. Well, hardly. In many ways, the curious thing about the career of Savonarola is that he fits so well into the strange and tumultuous cultural landscape of the late 1400s. The late medieval church in this period was decisively shaped by calls for reform, by the tyranny of high expectations, and by high levels of popular engagement, sometimes in ways that were deeply disconcerting to the powerful and, yes, often corrupt prelates at its highest echelons. And as Savonarola preached, he preached through a time of remarkable transition in Florence through the end of Medici rule and the institution of a new republican government. His relationship to this government was fraught. Although he criticized Florence's policies, and particularly its wealth, many feared that he was also trying to manipulate it, crafting alliances and exerting influence with many of the city's influential families. One of his sermons, delivered on All Saints Day, gives a good example of how he spoke chiefly to both leaders of the church and the wealthy merchants of Florence, who, in his opinion, had so much to lose and so many sins to repent for. He preached in Italian, opening by yelling about penitence. Penitenza, penitenza. He opened by appealing to all sinners, all sinners stubborn and lukewarm, all who defer repentance to the last. He then moved on to all of Italy, Rome, not incidentally the seat of the Pope, and Savonarola's audience absolutely would have understood the allusion, and of course to Florence itself. He told the people that they would, of course, not be surprised to hear him talk about the obvious presence of demons in the world around them, of tribulations in the world around them. And he told his audience, your impieties, your fornications, your cruelties, your sins, I say, beget these tribulations. He demanded that rich and poor alike do penance, he demanded that the rich give alms to the poor. He went on to inveigh against consecrated priests who were more busy with partying than saying masses with devotion. He preached against monks and nuns. He preached against priests some more. Uh, and then, of course, to merchants. He said, renounce your usuries. Give back other people's belongings and the things you have dishonestly taken. To all people who had anything superfluous, he demanded that they give it to the poor. For, he said, 
it is not yours. Pretty grim stuff. But Savonarola offered visions of hope as well as terror for the city in which he preached, Florence that he called both great and wretched. He said that the Republican liberty of Florence could become a holy liberty, that Florence itself could become the new Jerusalem. Against the realities of power, he preached radical equality, but also radical purification. And the list of required purifications may seem to a modern audience somewhat incongruous. Ministering to the poor and maintaining shrines are recognizable as useful social projects. But Savonarola also maintained that social and sexual sins were to be ruthlessly punished. These social sins could include such vanities as wearing tiaras, in the case of women, or indeed summer clothing, full stop. It was far too immodest, in his view. More conspicuously, he censured public gambling and gay sex, both popular pastimes in late medieval Florence. Savonarola trained troops of boys ages 6 to 16 to enforce these rules, and also proposed a special committee of women who would create rules of conduct for their weaker sex. He later went back on this plan because, as he told women in a public sermon, you would make a mess of it. We must put it into the hands of worthy men or of some official who will organize it for you. It is quite possible that this retraction was a result of a prominent woman, Mona Caterina Vettori, telling him that this was a stupid idea. Savonarola also preached future judgment. The sword of the Lord over the earth quickly and soon, and rivers of blood dividing the New Jerusalem from suffering pagans. And it was his claims of knowing the future that lay in the hand of God that got him into trouble with the church he criticized. Knowledge of the future, like salvation, belongs to God alone. Savonarola was excommunicated in May of 1497. Not only did the Pope cut the friar himself off from communion and from salvation through the church, but he threatened to place the entire city of Florence under interdict, that is, to cut it off from the Eucharist and non-emergency sacraments, until Savonarola straightened himself out. This precipitated the final crisis of Savonarola's career, but it was a crisis welcomed by Florence's government, which had been dealing for years with public resentment of, and protest against, Savonarola's behavior police. Though I have a soft spot for the over-the-top antics of HBO's Borgias, theirs is not an accurate representation. Savonarola certainly was tortured, but by a government commission. In the careful assessment of historians who have looked at the archival records, the papal inquisitors who were sent to inquire into his beliefs and practices may also have done so. It is quite probable that they threatened him, and it is certain that they terrified him. The trial by fire, which the Savonarolan faction eventually accepted, was from a Franciscan friar, not the dangerous and dangerously charismatic Cesare Borgia. And some of the most outlandish elements of this passionate friar's life missed the cut for TV entertainment. It is a matter, for instance, of historical record that there was a plot to literally blow Savonarola up in the pulpit. Truth really is stranger than fiction. But to return to the strange end of Savonarola's dramatic history. Although much of Florence had listened to the friar with rapt and indeed fearful attention, the anti-Savonarola faction was also strong. Known as the Arabiati, angry ones, or more polemically, mad dogs, 
they argued that Savonarola represented a public danger. There was a certain amount of frustration expressed in council meetings at the friars' stubborn insistence on radically reordering the city. And, moreover, there was a very real concern that Savonarola could get them all in trouble with God. Who could say whether his visions were real? Well, as a matter of fact, there was one method for proving that, the trial by ordeal. This was proposed by a Franciscan who offered to walk through the fire himself at the same time as a representative of Savonarola. And the Florentines flocked to the public square directly in front of the governmental palace to see this remarkable spectacle. Unfortunately for lovers of drama, though perhaps fortunately for those involved, the trial did not come off. The Dominican who had volunteered to walk through the flames on Savonarola's behalf wanted to carry a crucifix. The Franciscans thought that this bordered on blasphemy, and they also wanted to make sure that he wasn't carrying magic charms. The disputes over how exactly the trial was to take place were dramatically ended by a hailstorm. You might think that a hailstorm would be taken as fairly definite, if ambiguous, divine intervention, but no. Some said it was a miracle, God intervening on behalf of one of his saints but the Arabiati asserted that Savonarola had caused the storm through magic. The crowd did not disperse peacefully, despite the dramatic interruption. The populace stormed Savonarola's convent of San Marco, and Florence's city council called an emergency meeting that lasted for hours. Meanwhile, the friars of San Marco got fed up with the siege and started firing back at the besiegers. Why the convent had a cache of cannon and crossbows for just such an occasion is less than clear. Finally, the council decided that the best course of action would be to banish Savonarola from Florence and its republic altogether. They arrested him. Later, a Florentine chronicler would note that the entire day had been full of celestial disturbances and portents in the heavens. Although Savonarola was technically arrested on heresy charges, his trial focused on his political sins, and according to his interrogators, these consisted of manipulating the republican government for his own ends. In the end, he was executed in Florence's central public square, in front of the governmental palace, having confessed to prophesying a future which he did not know. His death, however, did not put an end to signs and portents in this city in the throes of transformation. Street preachers asserted that Florence would be scourged, and the church itself exterminated. Others said that while the end of all things was certainly coming, Florence itself would emerge as the new Jerusalem, powerful and purified. Neither of these things came to pass, but as Savonarola himself said, soon can take a long time in this world of ours. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.